This is the Education Gadfly Show. We run public charter schools. Well then, Bernie, you are okay with Bernie then. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Aristotle of Education Reform, Dr. Dan Scogan, co-founder of the Great Hearts Charter Network. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. And to be put in the same sentence with Aristotle, that's quite an honor. Well, you know, we're going to talk about your classical approach to education. So, you know, Aristotle was the one, of course, that popped into my head. Uh, I'm trying to think, was was he, uh, was it Aristotle or was it Socrates and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? I can't quite... Uh... <laughs> I think Aristotle and Plato both made an appearance. Maybe they did both make an appearance. Well, good. Well, it's great to have you with us. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. Uh, Before we get started, just tell us a word about Great Hearts. Great. Well, Great Hearts serves 13,000 kids. 11,000 of those K-12 students are in Arizona in our Phoenix network, and then 2,000 more kids in Texas. Uh, most of those in San Antonio. We also have a school open in Irving yeah. in North Texas, and we have well over 17,000 kids on the wait list just uh, knocking at the door to get into those schools. Yeah, that's great. You know, big a big charter network. Uh, and what's interesting, and we'll talk about this in a bit, uh, a, an approach that you use, the classical education approach, and also that you have made a real effort to have schools that are socioeconomically diverse, something that we don't actually see a whole lot in the charter school movement. So lots to talk about, but you know, Dan, we're going to make you talk about uh, the, the week's news as well. So let's get started. Let's play Pardon the Gadfly. Clara, kick us off. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders offered a confusing answer when questioned about questioned about his support for charter schools this weekend. He claims to support public charter schools so long as they are not privately controlled. Is the senator misunderstanding how charter schools function? <laughs> so, so, Dan, do you run private charter schools or public charter schools? We run public charter schools. Well, then, Bernie, you are OK with Bernie, then you are OK. <laughs> well, he is he's fundamentally, I think, confused about what charter schools are. You know, charter schools are for all kids. They're, they're public schools just as, as much as our, our, our friends who run district traditional schools. But the innovation and, and joy of the charter school movement is to provide new choice to families and to bring new folks, new ideas, uh, in our case, classical ideas, back into the the public school space. So mm-hmm. the fact that they're they're formed by by private organizations, by by parents, by those who are stakeholders just as much in the success of public education is uh, it's a misnomer uh, yeah. to describe them as just uh, to be uh, controlled by the districts. That's, you know, it, it, it's my sense that for the charter movement, <laughs> right? I, you know, I think it really comes down to the word private and what does that mean in the context of education, right? A private school is one that is both not run by the public school district, but also that, that in, in, you know, basically in, in most cases means that it is selective, right? You don't, everybody doesn't get to go there, that there are admissions requirements and there's usually tuition, you know? So is he really saying he's not in favor of school vouchers? Is that what he means? Uh, or is he talking about charter schools that are run by private nonprofit organizations? I don't think he means that. The, the woman who asked him the question at the debate was from a, a school that we authorize, KIPP Columbus. KIPP is a private organization in, in a way, but it's also nonprofit. Uh, or is he talking talking about for-profit 
uh, schools run by for-profit uh, management companies. Now, that may be the case, and certainly in Ohio, where the debate was, we know we have a lot of those for-profit charter operators, and frankly, they're not very good on a whole. It's hard to find for-profit operators that are doing a great job. What's your take, Dan? I mean, on do you think this this for-profit, non-profit distinction is important, or does that just get us hung up on on silly stuff, too? Well, Great Hearts is proud to be a nonprofit organization, and and I, I want to say this: so there are some great for-profit operators, and I think we just can't throw them all out. Yeah, you know, we as charter schools, uh, in our case, nonprofit. For those who are who are for-profit, we still have to meet the state requirements, the regulatory guidelines, the state standards and curriculum, and the fundamental premise of charter schools is that we have a contract with families that we will do it better and we'll do it in many cases for less money, that we will provide an outcome that is superior. So the fact that there are, are new ideas and innovators coming into it, usually started by groups of families who want something better for their children, yeah. it's just to say that the, the school districts have it all figured out, well, that's evidently and just, you know, patently false. Yep. <laughs> so yep. they have, yep. there's some great district schools, but charter schools are bringing so much energy and, and hope into the, the, the public education sphere. Absolutely. Okay, Clara, topic number two. Great Hearts Charter Schools serve students from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, something relatively few charter schools attempt to do. How do you make it work for disadvantaged and affluent students alike? So, Dan, I, I've written about this issue, and and I had a book a few years ago, The Diverse Schools Dilemma. And one of the things that I, I argued was that it is it's hard to find an educational approach that is, uh, in general, attractive to both sort of affluent uh, parents and low income parents, and that are uh, an approach that also works well for both affluent and low income kids. They come in with such different needs, uh, and yet somehow you seem to have cracked the code. So, tell us what what works. What what is it that attracts such a broad base of students? and that allows all those kids to be so successful. Well, thank you for that. That's, uh, I think this is one of the most important topics in ed reform today. What Great Arts has been able to do is we've created a broadly appealing public school model based on classical liberal arts education, but with all of the critical public school accoutrements like athletics, um, campuses with gymnasiums and fine arts auditoriums, with a, a, a model that's not just niche, mm-hmm. um, but appealing to, to, to kids. And, and what we've done is in a fully public school setting, we've created an offering um, that is truly a prep school, public prep school, and all families want that. And the secret sauce for Great Hearts is that the uniform, the honor code, the rigorous and robust curriculum, it's for all families, and that brings up families that maybe haven't thought about prep school as a true option, and it's also appealing to middle-income and upper-middle-income families that can't afford any longer private, expensive schools. They've been priced out, like so many families have been priced out of the college market, so too so many families have been priced out of of the, the prep school market. So we appeal to both markets equally, and then you know, we have schools that have significant portions of, of socioeconomically low-income kids, and they thrive so much better when they're alongside their middle-income peers mm-hmm. all working together. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. And, and I, I would say it's not surprising to me that 
the model that seems to work to crack this code is one that is fairly traditional. I mean, because we have a lot of evidence from over the years that the more progressive approaches, you know, with, with some rare exceptions in, in the hands of very talented educators, but most of the time, those more progressive methods, uh, they work okay for upper middle-class kids uh, who are getting a lot of, uh, you know, vocabulary and knowledge and enrichment and stuff at home. They have generally been disastrous for low-income kids. Uh, so you've seemed to have found a model that, again, is, is traditional enough to provide the arrangement and supports that low-income kids need, but still uh, is something that uh, middle-class and upper-middle-class uh, families want also. So way to go. Loving it. Oh, thank you. All right. Topic number three. Donald Trump hinted that former former rival Ben Carson would be playing a major role in shaping the education agenda should Mr. Trump be elected. Should Could Dr. Carson be our next Secretary of Education? What would that look like? Oh, Clara, look, I don't even want to contemplate uh, a, a Trump presidency. I am not excited about this. Of course, we don't take any uh, partisan positions here at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute uh, on, on these sorts of matters, but uh, wow, Secretary Carson, you'd think he would be nominated for Health and Human Services. He was a surgeon, uh, but he's also been a strong supporter of school choice and, and charter schools, and lots of people in the conservative movement love him for that. Uh, what, what do you think, Dan? Do you, let, let me ask it to you this way. Uh, you're doing the, you know, on the ground work in Texas and Arizona, trying to run great schools. Do you care who the Secretary of Education is? I think it's very important. You know, it sets the tone. It helps distribute federal resources, particularly help advocate for the federal startup grants that us charter operators need to, to open schools. So I think it's a very important statement about the next president's agenda, who he will appoint in, in that key role. Mm-hmm. That's fair. What, what kind of person would you want to see as Secretary of Education? I guess somebody what who, first and foremost, understands the role that charter schools play? It has to understand the role of charter schools and, and has to understand how charter schools and, and district ed reform can work hand in hand. has to be able to to motivate and inspire philanthropy, federal resources to go to innovation. So I think it's a critical, you know, I think Ben Carson, I I think he's a compelling figure. His story of what education has meant in his own life. I know at the CPAC last year, he called education the great liberator, the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's absolutely true. It is the social justice issue of our time. But it's not just for for one type of kid. It's for all kids that deserve this type of education, a quality education. I think his emphasis on character and values, that's critically important to Great Hearts. It's not just about curriculum. It's about the moral, thick moral cultures we create in our schools that are the real conduit of of creating a a new vision for, for children and young men and women. So I think he's a compelling figure. Mm-hmm. However, whether he has the policy chops, whether he has the political force of will to to go into the, the Department of Education apparatus, the belly of the beast, so to speak, <laughs> and, and move the needle, that's something that's beyond my understanding because I think it's a, it's a very, very challenging job, but a very important one. All right. Excellent. Okay. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. That's all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it is time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. (music) 
This is David Griffith, and here with me is uh, Amber Northern uh, with our Research Minute. Thanks, David. I'm just going to jump right in today. We've got a new study out by NBER. You know, that's my favorite little uh, type of study. It's called The Long-Run Effects of Disruptive Peers. It examines the effects of, guess what, disruptive peers uh, in elementary school on other students' high school test scores, college attendance, degree attainment, and earnings in their 20s. So a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, analysts link administrative and public records data for children attending grades 3 through 5 in one large county in Florida. I've never heard of this one. Alachua, A-L-A-C-H-U-A. There's a lot of large counties in Florida. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm butchering that one, so I'm sure a listener will email me and say it's not Alachua, Amber. It's Alushua or something. Anyway, that's the county that they examined uh, between the years of 1995 and 2002-2003. So they had all these demographic data, they had test score data, and they were able to link it, and here's the interesting part, to domestic violence cases filed in civil court wow. between 1993 and 2003, which is the part of the study that is a little bit strange. Okay. okay? So they define disruptive peer, like, let me just stop there, like, how would you think, David, you would define a disruptive peer? I don't know, based on uh, discipline records. That's right. Discipline suspensions, the severity sure. of the um, you know, infraction. Um, but in this case, they use how many times a, oh no, I'm sorry, they use whether a member of the child's family petitioned the court for a temporary restraining order against another member of the family. Because they say that the literature shows that children exposed to domestic violence are linked with a number of behavioral problems, including aggression, bullying, and animal cruelty. Huh. Plus, another study actually showed that these kids negatively affected their peers' behavior. So... If you can, you kind of got to like sit on that for a minute, right? So they they aren't disruptive peers in the sense that we've been tracking their behavior and right. their suspensions and so on and so forth. They are documented children who have, I mean, they, they've, they've documented whether these children have been exposed to domestic violence via V through a restraining order. Okay. okay. So that's kind of an important thing to know about how they characterize the sample. So assuming you can kind of go with that. All right, here are their findings. Estimates show that exposure to one additional disruptive student in a class of 25 throughout elementary school reduces math and reading scores in grades 9 and 10 by 0.02 standard deviation, so not huge. Okay. Moreover, exposure to male disruptive peers or those subject to as yet unreported domestic violence result in larger negative effects on high school scores and declines in college degree attainment. So this gets another, it's kind of complicated study, I'm not going to lie. Um, but they observe kids before the restraining order was filed, right? Mm -hmm. And then after it's filed, the abuse, you would think, would tend to stop, right? Because you filed this order. Um, so in other words, they see, they had data on whether the kids, um, you know, whether these orders had already been filed and whether they had yet to be filed because they had sort of retroactive data. And they find that those kids who, you know, hadn't been filed yet tended to elicit worse outcomes because presumably the violence had not been stopped yet. 
Okay. Okay. Well, that's one silver lining, I guess. Yes, one silver lining. Um, and then they also are a bunch of other findings like um, exposure to an additional disruptive peer throughout elementary school also leads to a 3 to 4% reduction in earnings at ages 24 to 28. So they had some earnings data there. Okay. Um, and then also reduces the likelihood of receiving any type of degree by 0.7 to 2.6 percentage points. Then they go on. There's some more findings that show that white students are estimated to experience a reduction of earnings more so than black students. So it affects them more negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some other sort of subgroup findings. But they they end up saying, you know, most of these are fairly small compared to impacts and, uh, you know, that we've seen other educational um, uh, studies. But I think I got to thinking, I guess, that, you know, if this is, is indeed true, this proxy that they use for disruptive kids is actually true then the solution here is a lot more complicated than changing curriculum or hiring an effective teacher or principal or so on and so forth, right? So you're kind of left like, what do we do with this if we can accept that this is a reasonable way, a reasonable proxy for this? Sure. All right. Can I ask one question? Sure. (laughs) All right. I just want to make sure I've got the the order of magnitude right here. So we're talking about one peer over the course of the entirety of elementary school? Elementary school. That's right. Okay. In every class or in one class? I think it was in a grade level for like, so I don't know. And that was really unclear to me too, because they didn't characterize like how many classes, you know, these kids had, but they did say over the course of their elementary school career. Um, And yeah, and it was one additional kid. And I assumed it meant in that grade level, but I'm not exactly, I'm not hundred percent sure. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Because sure. it makes me wonder, you know, is it the same regardless of the size of the school, school. or how did they and deal it was, with it? It was a, it was relative to a 25 person, I mean, kid class. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think in my mind, right. Like, so one know, could have huh. 24 disruptive peers at, as a max. That's right. Okay. Sure. And so in theory, <laughs> in theory, you could, well, I don't know, you couldn't multiply, but you could, you could see additional larger effects Effects. if there were several disruptive peers. That's right. And they say at one point that having three or four of these additional disruptive peers, I think was similar to the impact of um, removing a teacher who's in the bottom 5% of the distribution. Gotcha. So, you know, I mean, that probably was sort of some of the biggest effect sizes out of all these different findings they had. Um, That one kind of stuck out to me um, as being, you know, potentially meaningful. Gotcha. Um, and I guess we could con- consider these sort of a lower bound estimates, right? Because they're not measuring behavior directly. So in theory, That's if right. you could measure behavior directly, you could see even larger effects. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you wonder, you know, I don't know how hard it would have been, right, to try to actually collect, you know, behavior data. I know that, you know, gosh, it's 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 typically hard, right? Especially in the today's age where we don't want to, you know, we don't want to send these kids out. We're doing a lot more in-school suspension than we are out of school. Um, and now we're talking elementary school, right? So kind of what are these infractions anyway? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess I just I was kind of not real happy with the way that they had operationalized disruptive. Um, And I thought it was a little bit kind of weird to call those kids disruptive when it was literally exposure to domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of assumes that they're disruptive. Um, 
So that, I don't know. I don't know. Does that, is that bothering you too? I just feel like there was a huge assumption in the way in which these kids were identified that seemed to be explained and then, I mean, mentioned at the beginning and then not explained again. Yeah, I buy the connection and I buy that whatever effect they found is is linked to disruption. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the estimating the effect size strikes me as pretty tenuous. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, well, I, that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, <laughs> as a former teacher, I certainly buy it. Uh, yeah. It is a complicated problem. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, but we'll, we'll keep working on it. And that's all the time we've got for this week's Gadfly Show. Till next week. I'm Dan Stoggin. And I'm Mike Petrilli for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.